my name is T uh, Tim Brubaker, and um, just really thankful for the chance to be with you here this morning. Um, want to thank you uh, because you've been partnering with us in the the work in Rwanda um, for these last uh, five years, and it's on honestly it's a privilege to serve with you in Rwanda. This morning, I'd like to talk to you specifically about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I'd like to look at uh, Luke chapter 9 and go through this particular paragraph together. The paragraph is Luke chapter 9 from verse 57 to verse 62. However, in order to understand that one paragraph at the end of the chapter, I think it's necessary for us to go backwards and to understand how that paragraph fits into a broader context of Luke chapter 9. Again, the question that I want to seek to answer this morning is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Within this chapter, Luke chapter 9, it's as if there's a, a convergence of different themes, different elements coming together. The one theme is Jesus' identity. There's a strong motif within this chapter of, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And then there's also this theme of Jesus as the one who must suffer. For example, in Luke chapter 9, again, that's our text. Luke chapter 9, um, uh, verse 20, in that particular paragraph, Jesus is with his disciples, and the disciples, um, uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? You remember the story. And different people respond in different ways. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah. Then it's in the same chapter, Luke chapter 9, that Jesus goes up the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have this, this unveiling of the glory of Jesus in a unique way, where the veil is lifted and the glory of God upon Christ is, is revealed. And so there's this this, this strong motif of Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one of God. And yet there's this other theme that's also building within chapter 9 as Jesus begins to reveal to his followers that he is the one who must suffer. For example, in verse 22, two verses after, it's revealed that Jesus is the Christ. It's also revealed that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected on a third day, and be killed and then be raised. So the Son of Man must suffer in verse 22. And then this theme of suffering goes on. There's, um, uh, there, there's, Jesus comes back to this over and over again. Take up your cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So there's this, this again, this idea of Jesus as the, the, the king, and then there's this idea of Jesus as one who suffers. However, what's significant, I think, for us in answering that question is that in the middle of these two themes, on the one side that Jesus is the king, on the other side that Jesus is one who suffers, in the middle of all this is this important lesson for disciples about what does it mean to be a follower of a Jesus who is like that? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the disciples, in characteristic form, they demonstrate their hard-headedness and their inability to understand this over and over again. Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross. And if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then um, uh, in, from verse 46 through the 
through 48, there's this story about the disciples arguing among themselves, who is the greatest, who is the greatest? Because in their minds, they're thinking to follow the Messiah, to follow the one who is chosen by God, to follow the Son of God, is following one who is great. It's following a king, following one who is triumphant, who conquers. And so they're thinking, ah, yeah, I'm, 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 who is the greatest among us? And so they demonstrate their inability to get it, and Jesus comes back at them, and he says, the least among you, that is the greatest. And then in the next chapter, they de- or the next paragraph, they, again, they demonstrate their inability to understand this. However, it reaches a, a climax in this interesting paragraph, uh, beginning in verse 51. I won't necessarily read the text, but I'll allude to it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He set his face. Imagine this. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know why. It's because he's going to die on the cross. So he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And the way to Jerusalem takes them through Samaria. Now, Jesus, in verse 52, he sends messengers ahead of him. He sends messengers ahead of him into these villages of the Samaritans to, to make preparations for him. Now, in the minds of the disciples, this is messianic language. This is prophetic language. Because in the book of Malachi, it talks about how God will send messengers ahead and how they will prepare the way before him. So they're thinking, this is messianic work. We're going ahead of the, 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 the king. We're going ahead of the, the son of God to make preparation for him. Can you imagine? They're, they're going into these, these villages on this huge evangelistic campaign and their expectation of what it means to follow Jesus plays out in this story. Verse 53, the people did not receive Jesus. But he's the king. He's the king. People didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so the disciples, they see this, and they're confused. Because again, in their minds, following Jesus means a certain thing. They're confused, and they say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? We'll just burn them all up. (laughs) Because they couldn't understand what it meant to follow this Jesus. So verse 55, he turns and he rebukes them. And then they went to another village. doesn't say what he said. All he did was he turned and he rebuked them. In other words, they didn't get it. And that leads us right into our paragraph for this, mor- for this morning. However, before we get too far here, I think it's important for us to pause. Because I think that the inability of the disciples to understand what it meant to follow Jesus is something that is characteristic of Christianity in general, even today. It's a major problem across the globe, and I would say it's particularly a problem in places where it is either culturally acceptable to be a Christian or where we have material prosperity such that we can follow Jesus and have all this other stuff. In other words, it costs us much less than it costs others. We do really well with our Christology, with understanding that Jesus is king. We do really well with acknowledging that Jesus is God. And we also do really well with this other side that Jesus suffered for us, that he died on the cross for us, that he paid the penalty for our sin. We do really well with the victory of Jesus. We do really well with the suffering of Jesus, with the identity of who he is. However, I think it's really difficult for us, and I'm putting myself in this as well, because this has been a personal lesson for me. 
It's extremely difficult for us to come to terms with what it means to be a follower of a king who set his face to go to Jerusalem and to die on a cross. All too often we see Jesus suffering as a means to an end and we stop up our ears. We plug our ears whenever we hear words or we just, it doesn't register. When we hear words like Paul's in Philippians chapter 1, these words are astounding. Listen to what Paul says. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. It's been given to you as a gift. Not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. I think this has to radically redefine what we mean when we talk about what does it mean for us to follow Jesus. And so we move into our paragraph for this morning. Again, the context is the disciples are trying to figure out what does it mean to follow a Jesus who is both king and one who suffers. They're on the road to Jerusalem. And then in verses 57 through 62, we have these vignettes, these, these stories, these um, almost like parables, three of them that Jesus uses to demonstrate to his disciples what it means, what it really means to be a follower of him. So I'm going to give you uh, three, three things, three critical lessons about what it means to follow Jesus. Lesson number one is this. Following Jesus demands giving up your right to fit in with the world around you. Following Jesus demands giving up your right to fit in with the world around you. Let me read uh, from verse 57 to verse 58. And I put the text up here on the, on the screen or on the, the wall. I'm using the, the English Standard Version. Bear with me if you're using a different one. Um, they're, they're probably a little bit different, but they're the same meaning. As they were going along the road, someone, interesting it doesn't say who, it just says someone, said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Someone makes this statement to him, I will follow you. My guess is that the majority of us in this room this morning have said at some point in our lives to Jesus, I will follow you. And Jesus turns to this person in, in an attempt to now explain to the disciples what it means to actually follow Jesus. He responds in almost a, a cryptic language, a cryptic proverb, a parable. He says, um, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is a difficult statement to understand because we know that it's not literal. It's not that Jesus didn't have a pillow. It's not that Jesus didn't have a place to sleep. Oftentimes on his way to Jerusalem, you remember he would stay in Bethany with, uh, with uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. He would stay in their homes. It wasn't that he didn't have a place. He didn't have people that wouldn't take him in. And it's not, if, it's not as if he was saying, well, I'm, I'm saving up money and someday I'm going to have a place to stay, but right now I have no place to lay, lay my head. And it wasn't as if he was saying, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, just, I'm just wandering around. I think he's making a qualitative statement about what it means for him to be who he is. And then in turn, he's explaining to this, this, this inquirer or this one who, who desires to follow, he's explaining what it means to follow. It's as if he's saying... Even though I have a pillow, I don't have a place to call home. I have no place where I fit in. Even the most basic thing, think about it. 
The most basic, one of the most basic things that we do every day, most of us who are normal, we put our head down on a pillow at night. And Jesus is saying, I, I don't even have that thing that characterizes me as normal. Following Jesus demands giving up the right to fit in with the world around you. There's no way around the fact that by following Jesus, we are put on a path that leads us to becoming a misfit with the world around us. There's no way around that. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. It's the essence of following Jesus. Because we've come and we have followed one who's on a different path. He aspires, he aspires to different values. The value systems, the, 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 the allegiances that mark the lives of those who have been made new in Christ are radically different than those of the world to the extent that following Jesus will often lead you to make critical decisions in your life that will make no sense to the people around you. We were talking a little bit about this last night. Uh, one of the most challenging things for me as a 36-year-old coming back to the United States is to meet with my peers, people that I grew up with, some of whom they're walking with the Lord and just some of whom aren't. And just to acknowledge that simply by following Christ, following Christ has led us into things that are only, they only make sense in light of the fact that we are following him. I get people that ask me this question a lot. It's, it's really a difficult question to answer. They ask the question, what, why, did you, why did you go to Rwanda? That's a really difficult answer, the question to answer if you don't know the Lord. I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to tell you that. Because the fact that I'm in Rwanda will make no sense if you don't understand the Jesus that I follow. Because following Jesus demands giving up your right to make sense to the world around you and to fit, up, fit in with the world around you. Lesson number two. Following Jesus demands realigning your allegiances. Following Jesus demands realigning your allegiances. Let me read from verse 59 to verse 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So again, we've got the same topic. The topic is following Jesus. And again, we have an unnamed man. Actually, all three of these men are unnamed. And I think that's intentional. I think Luke leaves the name out because I think he wants us to all see ourselves. I think he wants the reader to see themselves, him or herself within this, this, uh, the, these, these parables. It could be me. It could be you. So this man says, let me first go back and bury my father. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, this would have been a normal thing. In ancient Jewish culture, following the, 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 the expectations of family, it would have made complete sense for a man to say, I need time to go and tend to my family and bury my father. Based on his culture and who he was as a Jewish man in the first century, it would have made perfect sense. And Jesus responds to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. 
This man demonstrates that deep within his heart, there was a deep-rooted conflict between the call to follow and the institutions of our world, institutions of our culture, family, culture, society. There was a conflict between his obligation to follow Jesus and his obligation to pay respect to family, culture, and society. In our culture, it would be like this. I will follow you, but let me first fill in the blank. Let me first get married. Let me first get settled. Let me first raise my family. Let me first build my career. Let me first save enough money. Let me first do this or do that. Then I'll get around to following. Why? Because those are the institutions, those are the things that our, our culture celebrates. Following Jesus demands realigning your priorities and your allegiances. It doesn't mean forsaking other allegiances. It means putting the main thing the main thing. Putting first things first. For the follower of Jesus, Jesus must be the standard by which we ascribe value to every other thing in our lives. This is perhaps one of the most profound challenges for a Christian in any generation and in any place. I've been reading some interesting books by um, a theologian in post-World War II Germany. And he was describing this as one of the most challenging things for, for Christians in post-World War II Germany was to look backwards and to say, why did we not do what we should have done? And why did we do things that we shouldn't have done? Redefining our allegiances, redefining our priorities. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and an American? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and someone from New Jersey? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and a, for me, it's a brewbaker. What does it mean? And we have to redefine all those things in light of the fact that Jesus is our Lord. As, as a matter of fact, and I, I, I'm running out here on a, on a, on a, on a little uh, rabbit trail, but I, I think that oftentimes our, the, the way that we use the word Christian, the word Christian, it loses so much value and it loses so much power. What is a Christian? A Christian is not someone that comes to church. Many Christians do go to church. A Christian is not someone who prays, although many times, hopefully, all the time, Christians do pray. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who lives his or her life in light of the fact that Jesus is king and that loyalty to him trumps everything else in our lives, every other allegiance. And it, I'll tell you what, it's not easy. And there are times when it will break your heart. I have, um, I have parents who are aging. They're not at the point where they need constant help. But my, I, I, my, my mother, she's, she's, she's had multiple surgeries. We've been overseas. There's been funerals we haven't attended. Why? Because setting it, following Jesus has set us on a path where that wasn't an option for us. But following, following Jesus demands realigning your allegiances. Lesson number three. This is the final lesson. Following Jesus demands giving up your right to be the master of your own life. Following Jesus demands giving up your right to be the master of your own life. You know, we're taught. I went to, I went to public schools all the way through uh, K through 12. Um, and I'm a good product of, of American culture. Um, so I speak as one of you, 
we are taught from a very early age to be the master of our own lives. We are taught to be independent. But following Jesus means giving up that right to be the master of our own lives. Verse 61 to verse 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Do do you hear what he's asking to do? He's asking to say goodbye. That's all he's asking to do is to say, let me first say goodbye. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All he was asking to do was say goodbye. It's as if Jesus is saying even the smallest excuse, the smallest reason that you could give for being distracted from wholehearted commitment to following me is unacceptable and demonstrates that you have not fully understood who I am. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Following, Jesus is saying, following me demands being undistracted, having fierce resolve to set following as the primary task. There's no room for making followership a part of who you are. It must define who you are and redefine everything you do. Failure to give up your right to be the master of your own life demonstrates significant reluctance to give yourself to the call of discipleship. Let me say that again. Failing to give up your right to be the master of your own life demonstrates significant reluctance to give yourself wholly to the call of discipleship. And there's so many words from giants in the faith that reverberate through my mind whenever I hear those words. You've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Uh, D.L. Moody once said, the world is yet to see what God can do through a man who's fully committed to him. Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Christian discipleship does not allow for half-hearted following doesn't allow the follower to come on his or her own terms. If I claim to follow Jesus, that statement of allegiance must consume me and guide me and direct me again to the extent that oftentimes the decisions that I make with my life will not make sense to the people around me. They'll make sense if you understand my Jesus, our Jesus, but they won't make, they won't make sense apart from that. Now, let me briefly summarize, and then I'd like to tell some stories from Rwanda about how I see these dynamics working themselves out in the the task of discipling Rwandan pastors. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what I do here in a minute. So again, three points, three three, uh, points of explanation. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's the question. And again, we're in Luke chapter 9. We're on the one side, Jesus is the king. Yes, he's the king. Yes, he's the king. On the other side, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards Jerusalem to, to, to go and to die and to suffer. Um, not because it was a mistake, not because it was a means to an end, but because it reflected the very character of the God that we worship. And so in the middle of all that, Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples, what does it mean to follow a Messiah like that? And so there are these these three things. First, following Jesus demands giving up your right to fit in with the world around you. By its very nature and essence, following Jesus will lead to a parting of ways with the world 
to the extent that you and I will become bitingly aware that we don't fit in. And it won't be because you wear strange clothes on Sunday morning. It won't be because you look like a clown on the streets. It'll be because you make decisions with your life that just don't make sense, except that you have a value structure that reflect the fact that you've been made new in Christ. What we watch on TV, what we listen to on the radio, this isn't the, this isn't the list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of things that, that reflect the fact that we've made Jesus Lord in our lives. What we do with our finances, what we do with our spare time. I heard this great quote from uh, Francis Chan last week. I was talking with somebody, and he brought up Francis Chan. Some of you know about Francis Chan. and He talked about um, when Jesus comes back, what do you not want to be doing? And he said, when Jesus comes back, I don't want him to find me in a movie theater with a bucket of popcorn between my legs. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with movies. I mean, But think about it. The fact that we worship a Jesus, that we believe that he exists, that he's alive, that he's coming back, that should redefine everything. Second, following Jesus demands realigning your allegiances. This does not mean that we forsake all, the, all other allegiances. However, Jesus becomes the standard by which every other allegiance and aspiration is ascribed value. Number three, following Jesus demands giving up your right to be the master of your own life. You cannot follow Jesus and come on your own terms. You cannot tell Jesus, I will come, but I'm calling the shots. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I share this with you this morning to challenge you, to challenge myself. However, I also want to use this to, to lead into a few stories about um, the, the work that we're doing in Rwanda. In Rwanda, we work with um, an organization called New Creation Ministries. And if you were there during the Sunday School Hour, you, you heard about that. We work with an organization called New Creation Ministries. And we work specifically with the purpose of discipling pastors. And without getting into the details, because we talked about it this morning a little bit ago, we found that the unreached people group in Rwanda are the pastors. We see dozens of pastors come to faith in Christ in this school or this discipleship program that we offer. Pastors of the unreached people group. And so our work really is that we come alongside pastors and for four years we're working with them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a school setting, um, discipling them. We visit them in their homes. They stay with us on campus they stay with us uh, in the capital city, and we spend a lot of time getting into their lives, getting into their leadership teams, getting into their families, getting to know how they operate for the purpose of helping them, first and foremost, to be more devoted followers of Christ, but then also to see the effects in their churches, uh, in their, 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 their villages, their communities. So that's what we do. And I'd like to share some stories from the pastors that we teach. And uh, those of you who get our prayer updates... We like to send prayer updates every, every month. And so far, we, we, we've sent them out pretty regularly since 2002, every month. If you'd like to receive that directly, there's a sign-up sheet back there in the back with a little orange tag that says sign up or pray for the Brewbakers. Put your, put your email address down there. We're not going to sell it to any marketing people. Well, depends on who you are and how much we can get for it. But um, anyways, these stories are things that we've already shared with, with, uh, with some of you. Let me tell you about um, this man on the right with the big smile and the white shirt on. His name is Pastor Kivuruga Jean-Paul, and he comes to us from the Evangelical Charismatic Free Church of Rwanda. Uh, it's a, there's actually a French name for the denomination. I, I'm not sure. 
how to pronounce it, but um, that's Pastor Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul um, is unique in that he's not just a, a pastor of a local church. He's also the president of his denomination. So he oversees, at the time that he started, he oversaw a denomination of roughly 60, 50 to 60 churches. He came and started with us in 2010. And um, like many of the pastors in our program, um, he was convicted by what he didn't know about the gospel. The first class of the first term of the first year is a class on the gospel. What is, what is, what is the gospel? What, what do we believe about Jesus and sin? And, and this was a man whose eyes were opened and he said, I've never heard this stuff before. And as it sunk into him, as he processed it, this guy, Jean-Paul, went back to his church. After the, after the semester was over, he went back to his church. He called together all the pastors in his denomination. So all 50, 60 pastors came together in one room. And he said to them, our church is built on fluff. Our church has no foundation. From now on, we need to preach the gospel and we need to teach scripture. Before that, they would, you know, they would teach uh, strange visions and prophecies that really had nothing to do with scripture, but were, were appealing to people's ears. And he said, from now on, we're preaching the gospel, we're teaching scripture. Half of the pastors in his denomination got up and walked out. And they said, we want nothing to do with this. He became bitingly aware of the fact that following Jesus will lead to a parting of ways. Now, in good Rwandan culture, that would be a huge, huge test of his character, not to go back on what he had just said. He stayed with us. Amazingly, he's still with us. Four years later, he's, again, getting ready to graduate. In about three or four weeks, he'll graduate. Half of the church leaders walked out. This is one of his church leaders that remained, Alphonse. And Alphonse is actually still in the program with Jean-Paul. They were so moved by what happened and so burdened for the gospel that they put a moratorium, they put a halt on starting any more churches in their denomination. And so for the last four years, they haven't planted any churches. They said, we realize how bad it has, be, how bad it has come, how bad it is. And what they do is after, after we teach them, they go back to the village they call all the remaining pastors to come together for a week and they give them an intensive seminar and they reteach all the things that we've just taught them. And they say, we are all about discipling our pastors and training our pastors based upon the things that we're learning. And so Jean-Paul is one of these guys who, he's, he's a hero for me in that he has become a model of what it means to, to follow Christ. The, the second story is, again, one that um, you've, you've heard about. If you follow our, 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 our updates, you've, you've heard about him for a few years. His pastor is Muhide Jeremy. And Muhide means be blessed or, uh, yeah, be blessed in Kinyarwanda. So uh, listen to his name, be blessed. And Jer Jeremiah is the suffering prophet. He's the weeping prophet. So this is really the story of Jeremiah's life. His name is wrapped up in those two, those two terms, blessings with suffering. He's a pastor that comes to us from a free Methodist church background. Jer Jeremiah, uh, Jeremy came to us in uh, 2008. Um, he studied with us uh, from the very beginning. Um, um, he was, again, one of those pastors that was convicted by the gospel. And um, uh, there, was, um, there were obvious dynamics involved in the classroom with Jeremiah at the time. Um, 
he was one of those guys that would sit kind of closed off to himself, and he kind of di he defined himself based upon his identity, uh, which dis which kind of distracted him from being um, in in fellowship with other people in the classroom. And so he was one of these guys that was kind of he was kind of standoffish, and, he, he, and it felt like he always had a chip on his shoulder. But he showed evidence of the fact that he, that there was there was faith in his heart. And so we walked with him for again for four years. The second year, um, he still had these issues. But we're we're not we're not out to you know to to chase people away. Um, we want to see them grow in Christ. And so I remember in the second year, one of my colleagues they pulled him out of class and they really let into him and they said, Jeremy, if you don't get rid of that chip on your shoulder, um, we're gonna kick you out of here. And you know and and uh, I mean it was such a tense moment. But Jeremy pulled it together. In year three, we sent a team down to visit him in his church, to visit with his church leaders, to visit with uh, his family. And then in year four. Jeremy was shining, four years of discipleship, and a lot of those rough edges had been, had been honed off, and we saw really a beautiful maturity coming through in him. And in, in March, no, May, May of that year, his fourth year of studying, he came to us, I was teaching a course, and halfway through the course, we had a little bit of a break, we had a 15-minute pause, and um, uh, we stepped outside, and Jeremy pulled me aside, he said, Tim... I want you to know what happened to me last weekend. He said, last weekend they had a heresy trial at my church. And my denominational leaders, my supervisors, my, my leaders, my parish leaders, conference leaders are accusing me of teaching heresy. He said, they, they have found me guilty of heresy. And they've kicked me out of my church. He says, I really didn't want to tell you about this because I know this is a school for pastors while they're in ministry. And well, now I don't have a church. I'm... I've been kicked out. And I was just like, whoa, what's, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to process this. And um, I went home and thought about it, talked with my wife and went back the next day. And I asked Jeremy, I said, what, what did they accuse you of teaching? And he said, well, they accused me of teaching that the blood of Christ is sufficient to save sins. They accused me of teaching that children are in need of salvation like anyone else. And he went down this whole list of things. They're all things that I had taught him, that we had taught him as an organization, as a school. And I just felt terrible because what we had taught this guy had ended up getting him kicked out of his church. Well, the next day we got back together and I pulled him aside and I said, Jeremy, I just need to apologize because I feel like it's me who has set you up for the trouble that you're going through. I just want to apologize. And he looked at me and he said these words, and I'll never forget them. He said, Tim, four years ago, I started here at this school, and I didn't even know the gospel. I was a pastor, and I didn't even know the gospel. He says, now four years later, he says, you can cut my body anywhere, and the gospel is going to flow out. He said, over these four years, I have come to understand that to be a minister of the gospel is to believe and to die. Here is a man who has understood what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, I, in the last uh, few months that we've been back in the States, um, we've, been, we've been traveling and visiting uh, partner churches like, like, like your church and um, other places, and it's been um, stunning to me um, the level of 
pain and disappointment that people are living with. Sadness um, caused by expectations that weren't fulfilled in relationships, marriages, sometimes even relationships within the body of Christ. And oftentimes within our, uh, our, our, our culture, we run from pain. And we get the bottle of aspirin and we get, get rid of that pain as soon as possible. And we do that in such, um, we do that spiritually oftentimes as well. And this morning I share these stories with you, not just to demonstrate what the Lord is doing in Rwanda and to celebrate with you because these are our stories, but also because I believe that these these experiences of pain that we have as we follow Christ, as we make decisions to pursue Him, the pain that we experience by not fitting in, the pain that we experience on account of the, the things that we lose, although if we're really honest about it, we lose nothing, I believe that that pain is something that honors God and it's a portal for us to go deeper into Christ. Because I think that is exactly the kind of Messiah that we follow. He is both the lion and the lamb. He is the lion of Judah. He's our king. But he is the lamb who is slain before the foundations of the world. Let's pray.